Hello and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm and we've got some farm updates for you today. So we have recently entered into a partnership with some friends at Guided by Mushrooms and they are a fairly large scale um, mushroom farming operation. They grow a huge variety of fantastic edible gourmet mushrooms and we then help to eliminate their waste stream by picking up their spent mushroom blocks and then composting them and using them as mushroom compost around our farm. Now, when we purchased the lots beside our home, the land there had homes on it previously and they had basements. So when they tore down the old houses, the properties were backfilled with just rocks and debris from those homes being demolished. And because there were homes there, and large equipment's coming and knocking them down and things. The soil on our newer lots are very, very compacted. And it just, it's just not soil at all, really. It's it's barely even dirt. It's mostly rocks and things like that. So we've kind of micro worked on building up some soil in areas where we have planted. And we've been doing it a little at a time as we have the resources to start transforming that land and get our food forest underway but getting this mushroom compost oh my goodness has it been an absolute game changer for us so what happens we get these spent mushroom blocks and then we have a variety of different ways that we um, prep them for use so one of the ways that we have prepped them for use is we remove the the mushroom um compost from the bags and we let them dry out a little bit because by design when you have mushrooms growing in order to get fruiting of the mushrooms you have to keep them damp well damp things don't do well with getting uh, processed through mechanical means they tend to gum up machinery so we have to let them dry out a little bit and then we just kind of chop the blocks into about the size of a softball um, or maybe a balled up fist or two and then we chuck them through our um, our shredder, chipper, um, wood chipper, and it spits out what looks like a sand texture almost. But in reality, it's a, it's a mix of organic material, uh, fungal material, and some sawdust in essence. So then we take that and scatter it around as needed. That process is a little bit more labor intensive. And so we came up with an alternative method for broadcasting that uh, material a little easier and it's a little more fun. So we have now begun taking the blocks out of the bags and then taking the blocks and just kind of throwing them in essence all over the yard. And they, they land and kind of explode and break apart a little bit when we hit, when they hit the ground. Um, and by explode, I do not mean like incendiary devices or anything like that. They just break apart into several little fragments. But then we go over them with our riding lawnmower. And when we hit the chunks with the riding lawnmower, it sprays the spent mushroom um, uh, substrate everywhere. And so we are somewhat inoculating with spawn the entire side yard. Um, but more than anything, we're spreading all that material, that organic material that those mushrooms were growing in. We're adding that to our yard little by little by little over there. 
and building up the soil. Um, now, once we get a pretty good amount of this mushroom substrate going, we'll be adding some organic compost and some organic composted manure. And that will give us a nice layer of soil to start building upon. Uh, we're very likely going to put some kind of a cover crop in this year. Um, we haven't decided for sure what we're going to be planting, but we're going to likely do that because you don't want to leave soil exposed. And so once we get all of that compost out and we've got all that mushroom substrate going, we're going to need to protect that soil so that we don't end up with a whole bunch of weeds and things. Plus the sun when it bakes down on that soil, it's going to kill off a lot of the beneficial microbes and fungi that are in there. So that's what we're going to be doing. We also are going to be covering it in a very, very thick layer of wood mulch. Now, the wood mulch that we use, I've talked about it a little bit before, but it's, it's just um, from our local tree service. A dear friend of ours owns a tree trimming business. He's an arborist. And when he downs trees, they um, use their giant mulcher, to um, break up all the branches and twigs and leafy material. So it's that really good, green, healthy um, mulch, wood mulch. And so when we put that down, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be putting that down in the fall. And that'll give it all of the fall and the winter and very early spring to start working on breaking down. And because we've inoculated it and we'll be continuing to mix in some spent mushroom blocks in there, we're going to have some fungal growth in there and it's the good kind. And what'll happen is that mycelium is going to help break down those wood chips and it's going to help turn that into usable compost material, good carbon material into our soil much quicker than if we had just put the wood chips down by themselves. Now we did this in an area that is about 12 foot by 12 foot in the back corner of the property. We put down cardboard and then we did the wood chipper method with the mushroom blocks and we put a layer of that, um, that mushroom substrate down in a almost powderized form. And to that, we added compost and some soil um, to that area. We then broadcast planted a ton of bush beans and we're going to be growing green beans in that area. We topped them with straw. Uh, we have lately been using straw to cover our crops. We use wood chips mostly in our walkways in the garden area, but we're going to be using wood chips pretty much everywhere in the food forest as there's not going to be clearly defined borders in the food forest like there is in the specific garden area, which is where more of our annual plants are going to be going. Now, we'll be mixing annual plants in with our perennial you know, permaculture food forest as well, just because of the symbiotic relationship they have with some of the other other things. But for the most part, the permaculture food forest area is truly going to be permanent agriculture. It's going to be things that are perennial plants. That's where our walking onions and things like that will go and the rhubarb and asparagus and other plants that will come back year over year. So having clearly defined borders isn't really as necessary over there. So we're going to be broadcast spreading that mulch. Now our green beans were planted um, a week ago. Uh, well, I guess a week and a half ago now, and they have already begun to sprout. So we have some small green bean plants cropping up, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, they are pretty quick to germinate, and um, green uh, bush beans especially have a, a pretty, pretty easy um, planting, growing, harvesting system. I mean, really... 
You can soak the beans to uh, speed up germination a little bit, but honestly, we don't do that. We just we just broadcast spread them and space them as best we can and give them a nice drink of water afterwards. And as long as you have really good quality soil that's going to retain that moisture, uh, we found that we haven't needed to soak our beans. But they've all begun sprouting and it looks really nice and lush and green. You can check out our Facebook um, for more of that information. You'll find us at Hogs and Hens Urban Farm um, on Facebook. And I've posted a picture recently about our green beans, so you can see those on there. We also, um, you know, we, we've talked about the chickens a little bit, but as we clean out their coop and we, um, we keep straw in their run, we don't keep a, a lot of straw in their run, but, um, because it does get really muddy and we don't want them to walk around in their own manure, we do keep some straw in there because it makes it easier for us to use a rake and scoop out that straw material and add it to our compost bin, which supercharges that compost. And honestly, we we found that it makes our compost um, heat up really quick and it helps break that material down super fast. Now our chickens do free range during the day when we're home we let them out and they roam around the yard and forage for bugs and other things in the yard and then they have their run that we put them in at night and they put themselves into their coop and go to bed at night on their own. But having the chickens roaming around in that property also allows them to deposit manure throughout the property, which adds even more nutrition to that soil. And they will dig around in the mushroom compost and eat some of the substrate because there is some um, some vegetable substrate mixed in with the uh, the wood chips that are in there. So they, they dig around through there sometimes and we'll nibble around a little bit. But having them deposit their manure is huge. And it definitely is going to lead us to having a lot more success with our growing over there. In those side lots, we have our elderberries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, banana trees, and green beans growing currently, as well as a black walnut tree. And we'll be adding more and more and more. I've also done an experiment this year where I have let my radishes go to seed and I had not done that in the past. I always harvested them right around the 25 to 35 day mark and ate the root. Um, the, the plants themselves will bolt and then they will shoot off some ras um, not raspberry, <laughs> radish seed pods which are delicious. You can snap them off and put them into salads. You can pickle them and they taste delicious. They look like a cross between okra and green beans. They have a very, very mild radish flavor and they're delicious and nutritious. But we've passed the part where I can harvest them and eat them. They're now going to that woodier stage and I'm letting them dry right on the plants with the intentions of harvesting seed from them. It's a way for me to take my radish crop and turn it into an even bigger radish crop in the future. So at the moment, our garden looks quite unruly because you've got a whole lot of radishes that we've let go ahead and bolt. And so there are seed pods and flowers and really tall vegetation from all of our radishes. Our tomatoes are absolutely going crazy right now. They are so lush and full and thick. They have tiny green tomatoes all over them and some decent sized green tomatoes all over them as well. We did have several volunteer tomatoes pop back up in um, a bed that we used to have tomatoes in last year, but we have since planted other things in this year because we do try to do crop rotation to help with pathogens and soil depletion and a lot of other things. 
And instead of picking out those volunteer plants, I let them go. It's my way of doing a little bit of a land race because clearly those species did well there last year and the seeds that were deposited and have grown were viable seeds. So I'm going to be experimenting to see what kind of fruit they produce because with tomatoes and with cross-pollinating, you can get any variety of combinations of tomatoes if you're not really careful about the pollination. So I'm not entirely sure what kind of tomatoes we're going to get from them, but I'm excited to find out. Those are the main changes or, or big things we've started on at the farm this week. Um, and this week's episode is all about weeds. Now, we've talked in the past about what to do with weeds once you've got them and the medicinal and um, nutrient benefits of several of the weeds. But weeds can actually tell you a lot about your soil. I still recommend that everybody have a soil test done to find out what you've got going on in your soil. Because if you have some chemicals in your soil um, that are potentially harmful, you're going to want to mitigate that before you go through the efforts of building up the soil. So if you have things um, in, your, in your soil like trace amounts of asbestos, which would absolutely be a possibility in our new space because of the old homes that were once there, you're going to want to get that mitigated before you go through the efforts of um, you know, building up the soil health. But in the interim, while you're waiting on the test results to come back from your soil samples, you can actually just look around at your yard. And a lot of times what you'll see, the kind of weeds you see, are going to tell you a lot about that soil. So um, I'm going to talk about some of the plants that you're going to see if you have hard pan soil or really hard, um, like a crust formation in your soil. And you're going to find things like horse nettle, morning glory, penny cress, field mustard, um, chamomiles of, of any kind. You can have Roman chamomile, German chamomile, and pineapple weed, which looks an awful lot like chamomile, um, as well as um, field mustard and other things. If you see those things growing in your soil, there's a really good chance that you have some pretty hard pan soil or crust formation. Um, another one, another type of of trigger is acidic soil. Now, a lot of plants like a slightly acidic soil, and some of them will pop up if the soil conditions are right and the acidity is correct. So you're going to find things like lady's thumb, horsetail, docks, fingerleaf weeds, and things in the sorrel family. Um, as well as knapweed and hawkweed. If you see those things in your soil, it's a good indicator that you have some acidity to the soil. Now, if you've got some acidity into the soil, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. That can be a great thing depending on what you're growing. So if you're growing things like azaleas or blueberries, those are plants that really like to have some slightly acidic soil. So it means that your soil is in a condition that those plants are probably going to be really happy. Now, the the next step uh, or the next group, I guess you could say, of, of weeds are things that typically sprout up as the result of human interaction. So that might sound funny, but... 
Things that humans have done, like cultivation, digging, tilling, all of those things, are going to disrupt the soil. And seeds can, from weeds can live in the soil for years, just waiting for the conditions to be right. And when humans go along and disturb the soil, that's when you end up with some of these weeds making their way into your yard. So um, you can do that also, I'm sorry, you can also get these from things like spreading manure or compost. Um, sometimes you can get these things from straw or hay. And so they're things that humans have basically led to happening. Um, the ones that we see the most on our property are dandelion, uh, nettle, lamb's quarters, plantain, chickweed, buttercup. We see those everywhere in our yard because we've been working our yard so much that we're kicking those seeds up. Now we use a no-till or low-till method, um, so we don't really till our land at all. The only kind of tillage we have at all is we will go through with a hoe and or a cultivator and we will lightly scratch the top layer of soil away to plant and then we will lightly go back over them you know to re replace the soil but even that minor disturbance to the soil that very top level can cause some of these weed seeds to crop up um, some more that can pop up would be prickly lettuce uh, fueled speedwell pigweed whorehound um, mallows carpet weed. Uh, let's see. I think I've missed a few. Um, some knotweed, field speedwell, and uh, rough pigweed. So if you see those kind of things, you know that you have definitely disturbed the, the uh, soil. Now there's other things that are just really nature. They're not necessarily weeds per se, but a lot of times you're going to have situations where you're going to have spotty um, croppings up and they're kind of just an extension of, of mother nature um, spreading her wings a little, if you will. Um, so roses are a big one in this category. Um, they they will crop up and spread and kind of end up everywhere if they're not really well maintained. So a good example of this is near our home, there is a house that is vacant. And at one point, somebody probably planted a small ornamental rose bush. But at this point, because there has been no human activity on that property in many years, the roses have absolutely spread everywhere in this front yard. And it's almost impossible at this point to see the majority of the front of this house. So what was once a small rose bush in the corner of this, this front of the house has now taken over pretty much the whole front yard. And it has grown up and in between the pieces of the siding. It's growing and weaving its way around the downspouts. And it's actually beginning to pry the um, wooden frame around the door off because it's growing under the door frame. And as it expands and grows and gets thicker, it's going to keep pushing and slowly but surely it's going to pick that door frame right off that house. It's kind of nature's way of taking itself back, if you will. 
Um, so roses are one. Now they can be absolutely beautiful and I'm not in any way, shape or form saying that roses are weeds because they're not, but if they're not well maintained, they can take on weed like characteristics by spreading and expanding into kind of an unruly manner. And because of their thorns, they can be quite, quite frustrating to get through when they've built quite the thicket up. Um, there are also some, um, the legume families that can pop up. Um, the legume family often prefers um, sandy and poor soil, honestly. And legumes are great because they will go through and they will fix nitrogen from the air and bring it down into the soil. And plants need nitrogen to put on their, their leafy portions of their growing phase. So if you see things like some field peas, for example, in, in a yard, that is an indicator that they have been, you know, randomly dropped there. Oftentimes that's done by bird droppings or animal droppings and things like that. But they're, again, not a bad thing because they're going to be adding nitrogen to that soil. And it's much better to have some kind of coverage, even if it's weeds, than it is to have bare ground because bare ground is quick, quick, quick to die. You're going to end up with more soil erosion and just deadened soil um, as the sun bears down on it and basically um, just scorches it to death. So seeing these random legume family um, plants pop up in between. Um, for our... Um, for our plants, I, you know, I've, I've talked about a lot of these. I definitely recommend, um, getting yourself a kind of familiar with some of these plants because, you know, I can tell you about what they are, but it's really hard to describe. And oftentimes they look a lot alike. Um, there are certain plants that will indicate that your soil is salty. So one of those is going to be, um, Russian thistle. If you see Russian thistle, you know you've got some salty soil. Um, sea asters, shepherd's purse, uh, sea plantain. Those are all things that are indicators that... Some indicators that your soil is sandy are going to be things like broombush, arrow-leafed wild lettuce, um, yellow toad flax, flowered asters, goldenrods. Those are all going to be things that tell you that your soil is pretty sandy. Um, now, we talked about acid-loving acid weeds, but there are also th some things that are alkaline weeds. And those are going to be things like woody asters and sagebrush. Now, in our, t in our area, we have a lot of limestone in our soils. In fact, um, not far from us, there's an old limestone quarry. There used to be tons of limestone here. It was, it was often harvested in our area. So we see a lot of these things. Um, we see a lot of hare's ear mustard and worm seed, um, Canada bluegrass, uh, Barnaby's thistle, field matter, yellow chamomile, pennycress, and field peppergrass. Those are all indicators that there's a lot of limestone in your soil. Now, if you have a lot of things um, in your soil like gypsum, uh, burdock. Burdock is going to grow if you have neglected soil and if you have gypsum in your soil. Um, now, burdock is a bit of a pain because burdock is 
a plant that looks a lot like rhubarb. Um, they have giant leaves. But the problem with burdock for most folks is that when they bolt, they are going to put on these enormous spiky little burrs that will get stuck to everything. And they are a real pain, especially if you have pets with shaggy hair where they will get caught in them. And they are like, um, my husband describes them as, you know, the devil's Velcro. They are hard to get real rid of. Um, if you have some soil that's really damp and it just isn't doing a good job of draining well, and so you've got kind of that soupier texture that's just overly damp, you'll get some things like swampy horsetail and um, some smartweed, uh, hedge bindweed. And let me tell you, bindweed is absolutely awful to get rid of. We have a ton of bindweed in our property. Um, bindweed is a type of morning glory and it is not like cultivated morning glory. So cultivated morning glory is something that only spreads by seed typically. And bindweed is spread by seed as well as rhizome. That means that if I cut it off much like a hydra, it's going to grow back sometimes with multiple branches. So we've been battling bindweed now for almost three years. Um, it is something that I cannot put in my compost bin because it's going to spread if I put it in the compost bin, unless I'm using a very, very, very good hot compost. And since my compost bin is not always at the optimal heat level to kill the bindweed, we just have to um, either burn it or throw it into the landfill, which I absolutely hate doing. So typically our bindweed ends up getting burned. But it's a really good indicator that you've got some very moist soil. Um, so hedge nettle, um, stinking willy, uh, Canada and narrowleaf goldenrod. You'll get um, purple stem aster and joe pie weed, um, as well as rice cut grass. Those are all things that indicate that you have got some very, very damp soil. Um now, it goes to mention that having all of these things isn't necessarily a bad thing. There are ways that you can easily mitigate most of these things. But some of them, you know, they're really difficult to get rid of. In our case, you know, it's been the bindweed that has been seemingly impossible to get rid of. Um, this bindweed, it is just absolutely awful. Um, there are several plants that are poisonous. Um, and some people will say that, you know, parts of the plants are edible, even though they are considered poisonous to most. Um, one of those is pokeweed. So I see pokeweed and I recognize the fact that I am not skilled enough to know exactly when it hits that point where it becomes poisonous and when it's young enough that it is still safe for um, consumption. And so pokeweed is something that we eradicate as soon as we see it because I don't want my animals to ingest those pokeweed berries and end up getting sick. Um, so... Um, Wild tomatoes is another name for horse nettles. 
and it's got really prickly leaves and it's got super crazy long roots. Um, it, it likes crusty, crumbly soil like we talked about before. And the way to get rid of something like that is to just add a lot of hum, um, humus or composted material in there. Um, so when you add some nice, decent, good quality soil in there, it doesn't really do well in that. And if you frequently pick it, pull it, get it gone, it can be easily controlled with something like that. Um, the, let's see, let me think of some other ones. <laughs> there are quite a few plants that have easy easy options for eradicating um, dandelions. If you dig out the taproot really deep into the soil and get all of the taproot, generally you can get rid of a dandelion. If you knock it down before it goes to seed, when it gets those beautiful white puffy little balls of fluff on the top, that can help it from spreading by seed. It's a pretty easy one to get rid of. Um, clover is not something we consider a weed at our home. We actually encourage the clover to grow in our yard because it does a lot of good things for the soil. And so we don't try to eradicate that um, but the plants that are, are easiest to get rid of are those that you can simply pick. But when you're trying to get rid of your weeds, it's really important to, first of all, assess whether or not you actually need to get rid of the weed at all. So, for example, wild violets. I don't actually do much to get rid of wild violets because they're not around for very long in our, in our area. And I actually harvest them and make um, salad dressing out of them as well as vinegars and teas. And the same with uh, purple dead nettle. I don't worry about getting rid of them. The fact that purple dead nettle crops up everywhere is not a problem to us because we use that um, for medicinal purposes and for making teas with. But... Um, get the most important factor when you are working on eradicating weeds truly though is researching the weed that you're trying to eradicate because in our case I didn't do a lot of research on the bindweed before we started tackling it and so I actually went at it in a very wrong way that made our problem worse. I started hacking away at it. We dug a bunch of the roots out and thought we were doing a good thing by removing a bunch of the root structure as well as the plants. Unfortunately, what we did was create lots and lots of little baby bindweeds that are popping up everywhere because every tiny itty bitty little root fragment that you find grow find in the soil will then turn into another bindweed plant. So we actually further prolonged the problem. So in our case, what we found with the bindweed that is being the most effective is as soon as we see it springing up, we nip it off right at the ground level, being sure not to pull on the roots. By doing that, over time, we were starving it of um, the photosynthesis process, and it's going to expend all of its energy trying to spread out roots and pull up leaves. If we continued to just pick at the roots and, and yank it up and pull it up roughly, then we're just prolonging the problem. So the fact that we have as much bindweed as we do is actually our fault because we did not do our research before we started going to town trying to remove that. 
Um, and so, you know, the best thing I can tell you is to, to do some research on your weeds. Now you'll find lots of articles online. If you do some research, um, you can simply Google, how do I get rid of bindweed? And you'll find tons of different methods and options available. We are, um, a farm that is dedicated to being as organic as possible. And so we don't use chemicals, um, synthetic chemicals, um, such as Roundup. We are very, very, very much against using Roundup on our property because it causes so much long-term damage. But what we do use are um, other organic means. We continually build up the quality of our soil throughout our property because so many of the weeds just thrive in hard pan dead soil it's a way to make sure that they're not a problem at all. And if you're putting down fresh, good quality organic material on the top and using cardboard um, or a barrier below, we use cardboard because it biodegrades, um, you're smothering out those weed seeds and you're giving them conditions that are less than ideal for them to germinate. So it helps to eliminate the problem from the get-go. Um, so in our case, we find that an ounce of prevention is worth its weight um, and gives you you know, a pint, a quart, a gallon of results, if you will. This year, um, you know, I'm, I hate it when you watch a gardening show or you listen to a podcast and it seems as though everything they do is perfect and everything they've done is perfectly manicured and gorgeous and aesthetically pleasing. I'm going to be really honest with you. Our garden is not perfect by any means. In fact, this year we've been doing a lot more traveling and we've been doing a lot of work to the inside of our house. We actually had to rerun wiring to the entire upstairs of our house because our house was built in 1885. It had a lot of knob and tube wiring because when the electrical was added to the home, it was knob and tube wiring at the time. And while knob and tube wiring at that time was perfectly fine, over time it can degrade and become a fire hazard. Part of our home had modern Romex wiring and part of it had knob and tube. And when the two connect, that's when there can be danger. So when we discovered that, we had to stop what we were doing in the outside of the home and focus on fixing the inside of the home to make it safe. As such, we have allowed some of the weeds and grasses to kind of grow up in parts of our garden. So if you were to look in our garden at this exact moment in time, you would see all of those radishes that are bolted and have radish seed pods. You'd see that some of my lettuce has bolted and I'm letting that bolt and go to seed as well on purpose. And then you would see, especially along the perimeters of my garden beds, there is some weeds that have seeped in and some grass. And that's mostly because of, to be honest, neglect. I also have a raspberry bush that I was so excited about and it looked so great for so long, but we got busy and it got a little dry in the pot and it took a little too long for us to get it in the ground. We thought we could save it, but we couldn't. So we have a very dry, dead, crusty raspberry bush in our, um, in our food forest right now. We're going to need to replace that with a healthy, healthy and viable plant at some point. But until we know that we're going to have the time to make sure that we're giving it the water and the attention that it needs in the first few weeks of its life, we're just not replacing it at this point. Now, the banana tree, on the other hand, our bananas are thriving. So when our friend brought us those, there were two of them, 
and they are doing fantastic. One now has five enormous leaves on it. The other one is short and small and doesn't have any leaves yet. It hasn't really died, but it hasn't really done much. And initially my thoughts were, man, I killed it, but I haven't. In reality, it's more than likely dormant because of transplant shock. And so we're just letting it do its thing. And when we're going to protect it like we are the other, when we go to put it away for the, for the fall and we cover it in leaves and make sure that it's nice and protected. And we could be pleasantly surprised. But the area around our bananas is a little bit neglected. In fact, we have an enormous thistle growing beside our banana tree right now that is absolutely unruly. But I let it go to flower because the bees absolutely love to pollinate um, with the thistle. They like to go around and and use that um, thistle flower. And so as soon as we get home from this trip, I'm going to go ahead and cut that thistle down and dig it out, though, before it gets a chance to go to seed because I don't want that thistle to spread but I'm letting it do its thing. It has its point and place in nature. And thistles have really deep, 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 deep tap roots. And they're dynamic accumulators. They bring up nutrients and things deep in the soil up to the surface. And bananas are heavy feeders. So while my neglect has caused me to have some weeds around my yard, I'm not necessarily worried about all of them. It is a lot more weeds than I would like to have. And as somebody that um, is a speaker about gardening and that talks about permaculture and all of these things, I feel a little guilty that my yard looks the way it does at the moment or my garden specifically. The yard looks great, but the garden, well, it needs a little work. But I also recognize that you know, diligence is important. And when you have to take some time away to tend to other matters, sometimes weeds happen. So just do your research and you'll find all kinds of ways to eradicate a variety of weeds. I could do hours and hours and hours of podcast about each individual weed and what you can do to mitigate them. But instead today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what these individual weeds mean about your soil. Now, again, I said it before and I'll, I will continue to preach this gospel to anybody that'll listen, get your soil tested because you may be surprised at what you find in your soil. You may find that you have mildly acidic soil and Hey, that could be a great indicator that you would be a good candidate to grow some blueberries depending on your climate, or you could have some really sandy soil. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because carrots and sweet potatoes and other potato family members, they really enjoy that sandy soil because it makes it really loose and easy for them to dig roots in sometimes. But if you have really compacted soil and very compacted sandy soil, that can be a problem. And if you're finding that your soil is very devoid of organic matter and no humus, then that's a good indicator that you need to get some organic matter mixed into that soil or built into that soil. And I like to do that with compost and compost teas. I like to do that by planting crops like carrots and radishes, which are going to dig down into the soil and they're going to naturally aerate the soil. And then when I harvest those radishes and carrots, I now have little holes in the ground where there's carrots and radish roots once once lived. So it's important after you harvest those things to go back through and to put some compost in that area so that it can get deep down in and it's going to start working its way in. Now I talked about the mushrooms before. That's a good place for me to sprinkle some of that mushroom compost because it's going to allow that fungal network to get deeper down into the soil layers and it's going to allow some of that organic material to get really get down in there. 
It's another thing, um, the, the mushroom substrate that we're using is very moist. It's very loose and soft and fluffy. Perfect for earthworms. Worms are a really good indicator that you have great soil. If you are digging up a plug of land and you realize that there are no earthworms in your soil, that's a really good indicator that you have got some soil that needs some help. That could mean it needs aeration. That could mean that it needs organic material added into it. Or it could mean that you have toxins present that the worms are, you know, sensitive to. So getting that soil tested is super, super important. You can purchase um, soil test kits online where you take a soil sample with the directions included in the product, send them off, and they'll you know lab analyze it and send you back the results. Or you can often contact your county extension office and they will give you instructions there. And a lot of times they'll do soil testing for you as well. I recommend getting your soil tested um, fairly often, especially when you're getting started about once a year, um, just to, to kind of get a gauge on what you're doing and if it's working. If you test your soil and a, and you've added nutrients and supplements and you've really been pumping the organic matter into your soil and you test it a year later and you're not seeing any change, that may be an indicator that you need to talk to your county extension office and see what recommendations they have for your particular soil type to get that soil health built up. Um, well, I thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, don't forget, I will be speaking at the Indiana Homesteaders Convention in October of this year. It's in Indianapolis, Indiana at their uh, fairgrounds there. It is a huge area. You don't want to miss it. Joel Salatin is going to be one of the keynote speakers as well as Pork Rind and former NFL player Hunter Smith is going to be a speaker. He is a former NFL player for the Indianapolis Colts, and now he's going to, or he is, um, running a huge farm with his family and has changed his lifestyle around traumatic, or dr not traumatically, dramatically. <laughs> and so these are people that you're going to want to hear from. These are people who have done some really great things. You'll also hear from folks like Harold Thornbro and Rachel Jameson, as well as many more awesome speakers at this event. You're going to want to get tickets quickly because tickets will sell out. In fact, last year they did sell out. And so get those tickets early and make sure that you get there. Come and find me, meet me, and I would love to share photos and stories about our farm with you. We'll have a vendor booth set up there where we'll be um, selling some homesteading items. You can also find me August 12th in Kettering, Ohio at Ernst Park. I will be setting up a booth at the Plant Swap and Shop, and I will be selling some propagation stations as well as some windowsill herb kits and other things at the event. I would love, love, love to see you there. So if you are in the greater Dayton, Ohio area, you can find me in Kettering on August 12th at Ernst Park. You can search online for the event on Facebook. I will be posting it to our Facebook group in the near future, so you can find it there as well. You can also message our Facebook page with questions. I would love to answer your questions. Um, I do work a full-time job, and so does Bob, and we both have very active lives with the farm and other things. But when you message us questions, we try to answer them as quickly as possible. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at this point. And we thank you so much for tuning in. Check out www.hogsandhensdayton.com for updates and information. Have a great day. I hope your garden is growing great. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.